Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hello, and welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 89. So I'm recording this episode on Monday, August 10th, and it is really going to be hot this week. It has just been one of the hottest summers I can remember here in Boston. And since it is Monday, I want to start out by saying I hope you had a good weekend, and I hope that you are well, and your family's well, and you're making it through this very strange and challenging time in an okay way. Um, I wanted to just mention, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I got a fish. I think I might've mentioned it before, but if you missed it, um, this very exciting update, <laughs> uh, I got a fish and I only mention it because I live in an apartment where I can't have pets. And I had a dog for a long time, a yellow lab named Bailey Rose. And I loved her to death. And when she passed away five years ago, I moved. She was 15 and a half. So she had a long, long, uh, wonderful life. And I moved to an apartment, the only one on my street that doesn't allow pets. And I don't know why, for some reason, I never thought to get a fish until recently. And with the pandemic, I was just thinking and hearing about all these people who are adopting animals and how wonderful that is. And I wish I could adopt a dog. And then I got this fish. I had this idea to get this fish. And his name is Gus and he's a betta fish and he is so interactive. I can't actually believe, maybe it's just my imagination that he's interacting with me. I've done some researching online and apparently they are quite smart and they actually need interaction. So I sing to him. We have kind of a nightly song session where I sing a couple songs to him and I speak to him when I'm home. I regularly go over to the, um, he's not in a bowl, he's in a tank, small tank. And it's just been a really wonderful relationship that's been developing. So if you're out there and you're listening and you can't have a pet for whatever reason, I would highly encourage you to get a betta fish because they are really, really interactive. Not like what I remember when I had a goldfish when I was a kid. So um, yeah, so that's just a little update on what's going on here in my apartment in Boston. So I... Um, I wanted to also let you know that this Thursday I'm doing another free workshop and these have been uh, happening for about the past month now, uh, just about every week. I, I wasn't really doing them weekly earlier, but I've done all together in the past two months about five 
And in the month of August, I'm doing them every single week on Thursday. Now the time on Thursday is gonna vary because I'm trying to catch people in different time zones to join me live. The best thing is to be there live. People are asking questions. I'm so grateful that people are. I know sometimes being on Zoom calls can be a little weird to kind of raise your hand in the virtual space. However, that is not stopping teachers who join my workshops from asking questions. And I love that because the questions are so great. It's giving me more information about where teachers are at and what they need. It's allowing for some free form conversation. So this week, the workshop is gonna be on Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And in the next um, couple of hours, I'll have the sign up ready so that you can sign up. You'll see me posting the link to sign up on my Facebook page, Bare Bones Yoga, in my anatomy work group, the Bare Bones Yoga anatomy work group, or you can always just DM me on Instagram, Bare Bones Yoga, and I would be happy to send you the link to join. You can also email me, Karen at barebonesyoga.com, and I will send you the link to register. So that's what's going on on Thursday. And I wanted to also just bring up an idea for you. I've had a couple of one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with teachers, and they a couple of them have been about different things. However, all of them have involved a conversation around feeling pressured as a teacher to uh, excel and also this idea of feeling like you're not good enough and i know right now there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome i feel like that's kind of like the new syndrome that people talk about that are personal brands or teachers or, or that kind of thing someone essentially that is holding themselves out as an authority on a particular subject and this idea of imposter syndrome is in a sense a description of feelings of um, lack of self-worth or lack of authority when it comes to holding yourself out as an expert in a particular area. Now, some of you listening may think, well, I'm a yoga teacher. I certainly don't hold myself out to be an expert in yoga teaching. However, just the act of standing in front of a group of people, whether it's online or in person, does kind of by its nature imply that you are knowing more than the people there about how to at least guide them through a yoga practice. Now, I am definitely not suggesting that yoga teachers are better at yoga than their students or better people or any of that. Uh, what I am though bringing up is that sometimes people have anxiety, fear, um, a lot of pressure, feeling a lot of pressure that they're not good enough to do that. And so what I want to just offer you, if this is something you've thought about, is a little bit of a neuroscience uh, approach to it, which is if you can imagine yourself teaching in a way without that pressure, what would that feel like and how would you describe that? Because what I've found in all cases, in all cases where I have um, talk to teachers who have this perception of themselves. In all cases, what I've found is when I ask them if they can describe what would teaching be like if you didn't feel this sense of imposter syndrome, 
they always can describe it. They start to describe things like, oh, I would be moving around the room really easily. I wouldn't feel, uh, or I, rather than describing it in the negative, describe it in the positive. I would feel at ease. I would feel confident. Confident always comes up. I'd be able to find cues with ease and they would be really clear cues that people would understand. I'd smile, I'd laugh, I'd maybe even tell some jokes. So there's never a shortage of an ability for a teacher to describe what it would be like to teach in a way that would feel comfortable to them. However, what oftentimes trips teachers up is the brain getting paralyzed around these thoughts that have to do with, I'm not good enough. And so what we learned from neuroscience is that in many cases, just starting to imagine and vision what it would be like to teach in a way, in this case, to teach in a way that you'd like is part of getting your nervous system on board with allowing you to feel that way in real life. <laughs> so it doesn't just exist as a vision in your mind. So I would just hold that out to you if you are feeling anxious or nervous or any of this imposter syndrome sim symptoms uh, to try to do some meditation and just some guided imagery around imagining yourself teaching in a way where you are free of those self-limiting beliefs and describe that. You could even describe it to someone you love as a, as a part of the exercise uh, and to help bring words to it. And especially in sharing it with someone that you trust and love, it's a way to make it even more real than just envisioning it in your mind. Um, so for today, what I want you to do is I want you to think about classes that you've taught where you've seen things in your students that from a movement perspective that you've thought, you know what, I really want to correct this. Now I have over the years called these teaching red flags. I don't necessarily say that they're all red, like hot red, like emergency. These definitely need to be corrected now. However, when I think of a red flag, I think of something that definitely should be corrected or at least attempted to be corrected by you as the teacher. Um, so I want you to think about, you know, maybe you're teaching online right now and you can't see your students all too well. So this particular conversation definitely lends itself more to teaching people live and in person. If some of you are teaching people outside right now, this would definitely be something you could, you could use for that. However, even teaching people online, especially if you're teaching a small group of one or two people, you might be able to see them. Uh, imagine when people move into certain poses. So let's say in a triangle pose, they let their head droop down. Let's say in a low push-up, they let their elbows swing out. Um, so I'm gonna be going over some of these examples. For now, I want you to just think about how, what you notice, what stands out to you, and what thought processes start going through your mind when you see things like this. I know for myself as a newer teacher, when I would teach classes with a lot of beginners, I would get really, really anxious when I would see a lot of, you know, kind of these red flag type movements. And I would start to feel like people weren't having a good time. And this is, again, a lot of that thought process. I would start to say things in my head like, how could that person, how could, how could that person possibly be enjoying this 
when I'm looking at them and it seems like they're really having a hard time. Or I would start to feel like I was not helpful enough in my cues to those students because I was watching them and I was seeing a lot of these kind of movements that looked really uncomfortable. And I would start to, you know, guess that the person wasn't having an enjoyable time in class. So this is part of kind of the psychology of what can happen to us as teachers when we see these kinds of movements and when we're not really sure what's going on under the skin and furthermore when we're not quite sure how to offer something as a helpful alternative so this conversation today in this episode i'm going to go over some examples and before we go into the examples i want you to keep in mind number one you can never really 100 know what your student is thinking so i've had many experiences like I just described to you and the student will come up to me after class and say that was fantastic. So I want to just hold that out to you that your assumption of where your student is at um, in terms of their you know impression of the class can be really different from where it actually is at. And there are many times that for students their practice may look like they're really struggling however they're really enjoying it. And again on some level, even for a student who's new to yoga or even for a student who's maybe got some weaknesses or some injuries in their physicality that's making it difficult for them to do yoga, what a wonderful thing uh, if they are able to embrace the things that they can do in such a way that they can leave that class feeling super positive about it. Because I know for myself, whenever I'm trying to learn something new, I'm a perfectionist and I tend to kind of harp on what I can't do versus acknowledging what I did do. And so I have had experiences where I made an assumption about a student's perception of the class. They came, came up to me after and shared feedback to indicate that they loved it. And that really was a lesson for me. So I would hold that out to you as an opportunity to, again, just put yourself in your student's shoes and not always make an assumption because ultimately, unless someone talks to us after class, whether it's online or in person, we're never really gonna know what their perception was of that experience. Now, the other thing I want to share just generally before we get into the details is from an anatomical perspective, many times the red flags you see either come from someone not knowing how to do what you're asking them to do or some kind of compensation that the body is doing to get to what you want them to do, just not in the best way possible. And some of that lives in the fact that, you know, from the hearing of the cue to the application of the cue to the movement the body makes, the body's going to look for the quickest way to get there. And if there's a way to cheat and get there anyway, with movements that aren't the most uh, aligned, it's going to do that unless the person from a knowledge standpoint knows, I, I don't necessarily want to do it that way. I want to do it this way. So this is oftentimes where we see red flag type movements in students who are new to yoga because they're not really familiar with the correct alignment. However, they understand on an intellectual level what you're asking them to do. Step here, do this, lean this way, and they're just going to do that. And if some maladjust or malalignments come up along the way, that's in their mind 
secondary to just getting to the end game of doing the pose. So this is where, as a yoga teacher, your knowledge of anatomy is really going to be key. And oftentimes when teachers don't understand anatomy yet, they, are, um, they feel ill-equipped to be able to help a student because they don't really get why the person is doing that in that particular way in the first place. And so the only tool they have is just to keep saying over and over and over again, no, do it this way, no, do it this way, no, do it this way without the right result back from their student. So again, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I don't really think any of you are gonna harp on somebody to, no, do it this way, no, do it this way. However, in your head, you may be thinking, why aren't they doing it the right way? And without an understanding of the underlying musculature, it can be really, and, and biomechanics, it can be really difficult to understand it. And so that's another reason why, you know, it's really, really important that you spend the time you need to with the tools that are most effective for you to learn anatomy. My signature program, the Blueprint Learning Program, is my method for teaching teachers anatomy. It's a step-by-step -step process to chunk out the big subject of anatomy, and it's supplemented with live coaching so that teachers have an opportunity to learn it in the program on their own and then apply it with guidance from me, especially when it comes to things like cues. So if you wanna get on the wait list for that, um, just get on the wait list on my website. It's the Blueprint Learning Program wait list. I will tell you that this week, I'm gonna be opening enrollment for it. And the workshop you come to on Thursday, if you can come, is going to give you the overview of how I break down a big subject like anatomy into its distinct parts that you should learn. This is always one of the biggest challenges for teachers because they go off on their own after their 200 hours and they try to fill in the blanks of things they didn't remember or things they didn't learn and they end up down all these different rabbit holes. That can be a huge waste of time and a great way to increase your anxiety. So I do all that work for you. I chunk it out into the major topics you need to know. So as far as the red flags, let's go into some examples here. One of the red flags to consider is excessive head movement, especially in postures where people are facing the floor, balancing on their arms. So anything like a plank or a side plank or a low push-up where they're prone and they're uh, fighting gravity. It's very obvious uh, when you look at somebody because you'll see like let's say in a plank their head is just dropping or let's say as they move from high to low push-up they have excessive movement through the cervical spine and their head is just like a bobble doll moving all over the place as they take that dynamic movement you also see this outside yoga if you ever watch people running sometimes people run and they have excessive movement in their head and you can think of that as being detrimental to really creating healthy stride and efficient movement from a biomechanical perspective because it's just excessive movement and anything that's excessive movement when you're trying to move in a straight line fast is going to be problematic for your speed um, and also back to the yoga scenario, it is not going to be great for the discs in your neck, the vertebrae in your neck, the nerves in your neck, because now you're moving the head around all sorts of different which ways instead of keeping the head steady like you would see in mountain pose, i.e. anatomical position when people are standing up.
So that's always the framework that I suggest you come back to. And that's why when I teach the blueprint learning program, I bring a whole section in about anatomical position because anatomical position is really the home base of shapes from which a lot of our foundational teaching of anatomy can come from when we work with our students. And so when you look at anatomical position and you look at the head being centered over the shoulder, it's working in concert with gravity. You're not, you don't have excessive lean forward or back. Your head is in dumping to the left or to the right. It's centered right there on top of the body. That is actually what you want people to maintain as they start to change their relationship to gravity. If they're in a plank or in a low plank or in a triangle, you still want them to maintain that. Now, if you see people moving the head around a lot, you might wonder why is that happening? Well, sometimes it can simply be they don't have the awareness. This gets back to what I was saying before. All they're focused on in many cases is the cues you're giving them. Move from high to low, lower halfway down, hug your elbows in, you know? And if you're not saying anything to them about keep your head steady or other things they can do action-wise to help that steadiness continue to appear uh, and be there, their head's gonna move around. And I promise you, it's the same with the runner outside. If, if they're not thinking of it, they're never going to think of it unless someone points it out because their main focus is on, in this case, moving from high to low push-up. In the other case, running from point A to point B for exercise. So this is where, again, your understanding of anatomy is going to be key because that's what's going to give you the knowledge to even add cues related to head positioning in these different scenarios I'm talking about here. Now, like I said, in terms of the why we even care about this, well, the cervical spine has the smallest discs, the smallest bones, vertebrae, and excessive movement of the neck is just going to cause excessive wear and tear to the cervical spine. In the moment, it might not be an issue, but over time, it definitely can be. That's another reason why I really don't encourage students to look up when they come into up dog, but instead just look forward. So that's the first one, excessive head movement. The second one is knee hyperextension. So hyperextension is too much, hyper, too much extension. Now, why would we care about that? Well, when we look at the structure of a joint, we're looking at a capsule, we're looking at two bones connecting, we're looking at articular surfaces, meaning where the joints touch, and the structures that create cushioning between those bones, cartilage, uh, meniscus in the case of the knee. And then we're looking at connecting structures that support that connection between those bones as well, namely ligaments and tendons and fascia. So this is all, these are all structures that live in the connective tissue world. And then we have the musculature that is involved and in that area as well. So when we think about hyperextension, namely too much extension, what we're suggesting is that the, the joint is so straight, and when we, if we were to measure it with a goniometer, it is the straightest it can possibly get, if not even past straight. So whatever the angle would be that we would measure with the goniometer, it would be even beyond that. So whatever, 180 degrees, 100, I don't know the exact number of knee extension for knee extension. Um, the idea though being 
they've gone past just a straight line. Now it's even beyond that. And so to get there, there has to be a certain amount of wear and tear on the joint to allow it to move past straight. Now, even in just a standing person, that would be problematic. Where we see it though in yoga is oftentimes when people stand on one leg, although we also see it when they're weighted towards that leg. So in something like triangle, when someone leans to the right, the right knee is more loaded than the left knee. So the hyperextension often appears in that right leg. So this is you know, where that cue comes from where people say, hey, if you feel your knees are locked out, microbend your knees. Although I highly doubt that many yoga teachers even could expand upon why they use that cue. Because again, the, the normal paradigm of teaching teachers is, hey, just notice this about this pose and just say this without sharing the why behind it. That is not the way I train teachers on anatomy because I feel like without the why, you're really missing the rationale. To have the rationale means you have to understand the anatomy. To understand the anatomy means you can create your own cues in an authentic way and you don't have to rely on just stuff you were told to say. So in this case, that's the reason I would offer you for why the cue to microbend the knees is even there. Um, yes, in something like a forward fold, it also touches on concerns about the hamstrings being overly lengthened. However, in this example I'm giving you of triangle and leaning to the right, if you're doing triangle with your right hand on the block, uh, it has more to do with preventing hyperextension of the knee. So just consider hyperextension too much. Too much of extension is typically not a good thing. And remember, too much hyperextension in the knee can also even affect the hip depending on what you're doing with the body. So hyperextension generally is not, not something we want people to do. Um, hyperextension also relies more on the connective tissue structures of the joint versus the muscle. So this is again, if you've ever been in tree pose and someone has said to you, hey, don't lock out your standing leg, squeeze the muscles of your thigh instead, the genesis of that or the rationale behind that from an anatomical perspective is, hey, I don't want you to stand on one leg leveraging your joint for support. I would rather you give that joint a little bit of laxity, not where you're hanging in it, but just bend it a bit and instead engage your quadriceps and even to a certain extent your hamstrings eccentrically to support your standing leg rather than using your joint to do it. So that's, that's that one there. The next one is hip drop in balancing poses. So again, we're gonna come back to anatomical position. And you know, if you're listening to this and, and you can't describe anatomical position, I really, really, really want you to come to my workshop on Thursday because this anatomical position is the foundation of understanding anatomy as a yoga teacher. And if you can't spout off, one is anatomical position, what are the qualities of anatomical position, what are the anatomical movements, what are the planes of the body, you really need to brush up on it. So here I'm talking about hip drop. So when I'm talking about hip drop, I'm talking about in anatomical position, the hips are level. That level quality comes from having both feet on the ground. If I ask you, in mountain pose to lift your right leg just a little bit 
and I look at your hips and one hip drops, let's say as soon as, I, let's say I'm in mountain pose and I lift and I say to you, lift your left foot a little bit off the floor. You're gonna naturally start to lean to your right leg because that's the one that's on the ground. The left foot's a little bit off. What tends to happen is that the left hip, the foot off the floor will sag. So we typically call that hip drop. Now that in a balancing posture like tree is a red flag you'd want to correct. In a, in a different balancing posture, it might not be. So think of something like dancer's pose where yes, it's a balancing pose, but their other foot's back behind them and they're grabbing onto it. You probably won't see hip drop there. Um, however, you could see hip drop in something like eagle. You could see it in, tree, uh, in airplane, decasana. So hip drop um, refers to a dropping, right? One side of the hip is lower than the other. And so why would this be happening? Why would we think this would be happening? Well, if we just think about something that's connected to the pelvis is not doing its job, right? That's a simple way when we look at somebody and we see something problematic in their alignment, we can just start to think about, well, what's touching that, right? So if you think about um, like a, a, a puppet on puppet strings, what are the strings touching that you would want to be working in a particular way that is not. So in this case, as I drop that left hip, something is not helping me keep the hips level. And in many cases, it can be that the right hip, the lateral hip stabilizers are not engaged enough to create that level pel pelvis. Uh, so essentially the lateral hip stabilizers on the right side are not strong enough to do the job of keeping the pelvis level. So that's muscles like the gluteus medius, the gluteus minimus, the tensor fascia lata, and the IT band. Also, to a certain extent, something is not active in the core because we know we have core musculature that touches the pelvis, right? We've got the transversus abdominis that goes all the way around the uh, center of the body and definitely touches the pelvis in some way. So that's why when you see somebody in tree and they have hip drop, a good thing to do is to cue them to root into their standing leg more, thus engaging the lateral hip stabilizers and draw the belly button in more, thus engaging rectus abdominis and transversus abdominis. So those two cues can sometimes correct it and that's the anatomical rationale for it. And this is again, a really good example of how the knowledge gives you the freedom to create the cue in an authentic way that gives you the confidence, i.e. no imposter syndrome, and gives the student what they need to correct what they're doing, which is okay. However, they're just kind of doing it in the best way they know. You're seeing what's problematic and your cues are pinpoint on to helping them correct that. And I can't impress upon you enough how that ability to do all that comes from your knowledge in anatomy. So again, just further, further support for, um, for spending the time to learn it so that you can also uh, provide cues in this way. Another thing that falls into this category is 
pushing uh, the knee way past the heel. Now this, you know, none of these things in and of themselves are really, really awful. It's just when we start to do these things over and over and over again, where they become problematic. And sometimes these movements in and of themselves aren't always a problem in different scenarios. So if you take a goddess pose, your knee is gonna move past your heel. However, if you take a warrior one or a crescent lunge, you don't really want your knee moving past your heel there. Is it awful? Eh, you know, would you want to correct the person? Definitely. And here, my feeling is the rationale lies in that forward moving knee way beyond the heel is kind of a loaded situation for the kneecap, for the patella itself. So as you press that knee forward more, if you don't have enough happening in the other parts of the body to kind of back it off a little bit, that is a lot of pressure on the kneecap and you can create some wear and tear there in the joint itself. So that's kind of the, the rationale behind the knee over heel and, and lunges and low lunges and lizard poses and warrior ones, things like that. Um, the other uh, thing to, the other, another example kind of red flag scenario is rounding of the spine in forward folds. So this is, um, let's say you have someone in ragdoll and they are really hanging over their legs, but they're very far, their hands are very far away from the floor and they have a really big lordotic spine, which is that, I'm sorry, kyphotic spine, which is the rounded back. And this can be a reflection of hamstrings that are tight, possibly. Uh, it can be just a reflection of they do a lot of that forward posturing a lot. So when you ask them to forward fold, they're just used to hunching and that's just going to show up a lot anyway, even in their anatomical position. So then when you have them forward fold, it could show up even more. The correction you probably know is to encourage people to bend their knees a little bit. And this again points to the relationship between the hamstrings and where they originate on the sitting bones and the sitting bones being of course part of the pelvis. The pelvis, of course, being connected to the lumbar spine, you know, and that whole interplay between those structures. This is a great, great example of how nothing works in isolation for good or for bad. So if we see misalignment, we may see it in the spine, but it could be a reflection of something further down the chain. In this case, pelvis to sitting bones to hamstrings, even to calf musculature, gastrocnemius. So again, always keep in mind when you're looking at people, you may see something as a red flag. However, see if you can zoom out a bit and take into account the whole body. And again, this is where your knowledge of anatomy is going to kick in. You need to have a good understanding of all of the things that are happening and contributing, uh, even though your cue might just be to, in this case, bend the knees a little bit. Another one that um, we kind of talked about at the beginning is elbows winging out to the sides in low push-up. This can happen because people have weakness, right? So let's think about it. You're seeing somebody with their elbows out in, in low push-up and you're thinking, that's not really good. I'd like them to hug their elbows in. Why is that not happening? Well, just like the hip drop situation where I said, what's touching the hip? What's touching the pelvis? What's touching the, um, I guess you could say to a certain extent, the, you know, because when the elbows wing out, the scapula elevate. So what's touching the scapula, allowing it to elevate? And what would I rather the scapula do when people move into chaturanga, 
Well, I'd rather people when they're in Chaturanga have their elbows hugged in and I'd rather their scapula not elevate and actually be more anchored to the thoracic spine. So a good candidate for a muscle that anchors my scapula to the thoracic spine is a muscle on the thoracic spine, the um, serratus anterior. And it connects thoracic spine to scapula through ribs two through eight. And so as I ask people to hug the elbows in by their sides, the serratus anterior, which is a chronically weak and underused muscle in the population in people. Uh, and that's a really good reason why people tend to let the elbows wing out because their upper trapezius tends to be overused their serratus anterior tends to be underused. And so this is another example of the interplay between a muscle that's overactive, a muscle that's underactive, a person that's practicing that intellectually understands you're saying, move from high to low push-up. And even in this case, if you say, hug your elbows and by your sides and they get it, they won't be able to do it if there's too much upward pull in the scapula from that upper trapezius and the serratus loses in that game, it's just too weak. So that's a good reason to do things to strengthen the serratus uh, in people. So things like plank and dolphin pose, eagle pose, prasarita padatanasana, where you have people with the palms down, hugging the elbows in uh, towards the center line. Um, I would say another, the last one we could talk about is this um, excessive feet turnout in a wheel. And this has to do with, you know, when people are coming into wheel pose, number one, they're usually using, using a great amount of effort to push from the ground up into Urdhva Dhanurasana wheel pose. And with that excess effort, um, will come excessive movement if they're not aware of correcting it. So um, here, when we move people into wheel, we're, you know, got to kind of think about what's the anatomical movement. Well, we're moving them into spinal extension. When they move into spinal extension, what muscles are coordinating that movement when well, we've got muscles of the spine, the erector spinae, we have the hips in extension too. So we have muscles of hip extension like the uh, gluteus maximus and the hamstrings. And when we start to look at some of the other things those muscles do, we find out that the gluteus maximus also does a little bit of hip, ex uh, hip external rotation. So once we know that, we can understand why people come into wheel and often have their feet splay out because they're, you know, using their glute max for more than just the extension function. They're also using their glute max for the external rotation function. However, if we anticipate that's going to happen, and this is a great tip for teaching online classes because you can't really see people clearly. However, the more you understand about anatomy, you start to understand patterns of movement that are out of alignment. And you can even just kind of preload your cueing of a pose with some of these things that you know are probably going to happen for people. This is again, a great technique for teaching people online because you can't be in the room with them and you can't see them. You might offer them some kind of preemptive cues 
in the way of, let's say for this pose. All right, so we're gonna come into wheel right now. We've just done a couple bridges. So set your feet down flat, hip width apart. I want you to just be aware as you get ready to come into this pose, try to keep your feet pretty straight and parallel to one another. Okay, so set your hands up by your head, push up off the floor, set your gaze back, take a few breaths, and bring your mind again to your feet. If you notice your feet have started to turn out, see if you can turn your feet so they're a little more parallel, press your hips up to the sky, take a deep breath in, and then lower down, right? So what I did there is I preemptively offered them the cue about the feet. I then went back to it as I had them in the pose and so this is a way when you're teaching online, you can add these cues in to give people a heads up about what they're gonna probably need to self-correct when they come into the pose. Now, in order to have a repertoire, a library of those kind of preemptive cues that you're gonna to wanna to share, that's again, being able to develop all those, the how to do that, lies in getting the training to do it. And that is, again, another thing that my Blueprint Learning Program will train you on. So again, you know, this is just to kind of show you how all this stuff weaves together. And it actually weaves in really nicely. I didn't really think about it, but it weaves in really nicely with the theme we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, this feeling like I'm not really able to share things confidently. I don't really feel like I know. I don't really feel like an authority. Um, and in many cases, it's not really something that you could have prevented. You know, the way that many teachers are taught is this very kind of, you know, just say this, just say this, just say this. So you're kind of out of your training, not really armed with knowledge per se. You're just armed with stuff to say and that only gets you so far and oftentimes does result in feeling like i'm not really able to think on my feet i'm not really able to be as helpful as possible i don't really feel like i understand what's happening i just feel like i'm saying things i was told to say so those are all red flags um and just a little bit about what's going on be behind each one and i want you to just you know, I'll kind of end this particular part of the episode by saying, as you are listening to this, if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like you're not really in a place where you can cue in this way, I want to offer you a really powerful shift in cueing to cueing from action. When you cue from action, you never have to worry about getting into these tangled spots where the anatomy is got you up in a bunch. What it'll allow you to do is offer people a really clear list of things to do for every pose where you're not getting yourself in a scenario where you are pretending you know the anatomy that you don't. And then all the subsequent problems that come up as a result of that, namely, um, you know, you start to say words that you're not really sure of and, and that kind of thing. So action cueing, in my mind, is a great bridge to anatomy-based cueing and gives you the breathing room to learn the anatomy however, still gives you a really effective way to teach. So action cues being 
you know, step your foot forward, reach your arms up, hinge from your hips, you know, squeeze your back thigh, center your hips, you know, push off the ground, press your heart forward, all those things that are super easy to get, easy for people to understand, and um, don't require that you, you know, kind of fake your way through the anatomy. So that's a good place to start and will give you plenty of, you know, plenty of things that you can offer your students as you learn anatomy. And so here we are. So we've finished this episode and I really want to thank you if you're still listening um, for hanging on to the end. I would love to hear what you think about the podcast. So feel free to leave a review on iTunes or send me an email, go in the Facebook group and write your comments. I hope I see you in the workshop on Thursday. Uh, I will DM you, email you the link, or you can just find that on my Facebook page, the link to register for that workshop. And so that's it. We're going to wrap up this episode today. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian. And I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my mentorship program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.